This is an RNZ podcast. Uh, I've got to say, as a Kiwi, it was pretty embarrassing standing there last night. Uh, and, you know, I don't think any of us should accept this as normal. The scheme may be working well generally, but this surely cannot continue. That's Nick Truebridge talking to News Hub at six presenters Samantha Hayes and Mike McRoberts after finding 40 migrant workers living in a filthy, overcrowded house in Papakura. The workers had called the police after running out of food and surviving on water for days. Three days we are not, we don't have nothing to eat, only just drinking water. No food. No food, nothing. No food, sir, only drinking water. Drinking water. Truebridge followed that with another story the following night about four more substandard properties crowded with migrant workers. Here he is taking the News Hub camera on a tour of one of those. Six people in this room alone. It would only be, let's say, four metres by five metres. And as we come through here, the bathroom, there's only one in the entire house. We're told there's a line to use it every morning. But it's also what you can't see. There's a smell of sewage from underneath the home. One of the occupants tells us the plumbing is broken. That sounds less than ideal. And Truebridge explained the migrants had been subjected to those conditions after trying to find a better life applying under the accredited employer work visa scheme. He's not the only one who's been covering the plight of workers suckered in by offshore immigration agents illegally selling non-existent jobs under that scheme, which Immigration NZ acknowledges is a higher trust model than the six visa options it replaced about a year ago. At RNZ, Lucy Sear has been telling the stories of migrants allegedly exploited and left all but destitute after being told they're heading into decent jobs. Here's one, Keisha Kung, describing how she survived after travelling to Dunedin for work that never materialised. I waited for two weeks, in between when there was no food to eat. I'd go to the back mountain to forage for wild vegetables and just eat it with instant noodles. On Wednesday, the New Zealand Herald's Lincoln Tan reported that 164 accredited employers are under investigation for migrant exploitation. At his online newsletter, The Kaka, Bernard Hickey has called these scams a symptom of our churn-and-burn economy. There was a time New Zealand, or at least its former PM John Key, aspired to become the Switzerland of the South Pacific, providing high-value financial services to the world's richest families. Instead, we've become a version of the Dubai of the South Pacific, allowing fraudulent agents and fly-by-night firms to bring in desperate and poor workers with suggestions of high-paid jobs and residency, only to pull the rug out from under their feet and leaving them indebted and even more desperate. And at Stuff, National Correspondent Steve Kilgallen has been following this story for months, first reporting in April on migrants who were left out of a job and penniless after paying thousands of dollars to agents promising lucrative work. This reporting has prompted Immigration Minister Andrew Little to order an urgent review of the accredited employer visa scheme after initially denying any link between it and the apparent rise in migrant exploitation. This reporting has led directly to improvements in workers' lives in several cases. In June, Kilgallen reported on Bao Guao, who was surviving on instant noodles after going deeply into debt to get a job that laid him off within days. 
Guo was offered a full-time job at the Papakura door manufacturer Superior Doors after its owner Aaron Davidson was moved by his plight. Here he is talking about his new job through some translation software. Despite the language barrier, Bao Guo, who has adopted the English name Mike, has settled in well, although he deeply misses his family back home. I miss my Chinese family very much. I am very happy to work here, and our boss, Eri, our factory director and the staff below. They are very warm to me. At the same time, they often come to help me, and I work very well here. For True Bridget's early days on this beat, but those Papakura workers from his first story who were going without food have been fed. Now he says they're on the lookout for work. Police have been feeding them as well as various migrant networks, but what they really need, and I guess this is a bit of a shout-out tonight, is jobs from Kiwi businesses who might need things like drivers uh, or welders. So they're all good for food, but if there's anyone out there who needs a driver, well, there's certainly... It would appear to be some looking for jobs. This seems to be a classic case of journalism doing what it's meant to, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. But it's notable that it took 40 people running out of food in a sodden, crammed house for the story to make the 6pm news. The dire reality of these migrants' plight may hint at a sense of impunity from their immigration agents or their sometimes elusive employers. The workers often don't have a support network in New Zealand. They're in a precarious economic situation and many of them don't speak English. As a result, they don't always get the attention of our authorities or our media. It's hard to imagine this situation escalating to the same extent if the victims were from a different background or possessed a higher socioeconomic status. I asked Steve Kilgallen how he started covering these stories and whether there's anything more the media can do to ensure migrants have their voices heard. Kia ora, Steve, and welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. So how long have you been covering migrant exploitation and what was it that switched you on to it as this topic for extensive investigation? Um, I, th- I think about five or six years, um, and there's probably two reasons, one altruistic, one not. Um, as a journalist, you're always looking to fish in the pond where no one else is fishing. And um, at the at the time, with the exception of Lincoln Town at the Herald, not, nobody was really looking at this kind of stuff. And... After I wrote my first story about it, I realised that there was just there was just everywhere. Um, and the second reason, um, people might not believe me, but it's true, was that um, I'm always interested in stories where you, you hope there might be a potential positive outcome from them if you expose something. And it, it struck me over time that some of these stories were having a good outcome for the people I wrote about. And if I kept writing them, you know, maybe we might see some sy- systemic change, but at least we'd see changes in the lives of these people who've been... Uh, brought here and sold a dream and, um, you know, were left in horrific living conditions. Exactly. You say it's a, it's kind of been a fruitful area of study for you in some ways. It's been There's been a lot of stories in this sector. But is it worse than ever now? I think we're seeing a lot more attention on it now than we have for some time. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Um, there's some journalists doing some really good stuff, Dilipa Fonseca, Lucy Shah, Nick Trubridge this week. Um so I'm not the only one fishing in that pond anymore, uh, but I think I think it's it's been there ever since uh, probably National relaxed the controls on student visas uh, when Stephen Joyce was the minister. We got a massive influx of um, Punjabi Indian students moving into those um, 
quite questionable sort of business qualifications and then being churned out the other side into jobs where they were exploited. I just think at the time as a country, we didn't pay a huge amount of attention to that, except when it, it was really thrust in our faces, like the time those guys were um, barricading themselves in a church and it made the headlines. But that was going on for quite a long time before people paid attention. It's just the manner in how these guys are exploited has changed over time as the visa system's changed, I think. Yeah, so it's kind of reached a tipping point now. Is that what's happened, that the accredited employer work visa has come in, that might have caused some extra problems and that has brought more attention to the exploitation of these migrants? I think so, yeah. Um, The rationale for the the accredited visa was that it tidied up quite a complicated system with six six or seven different ways of people bringing people in. But I think what it has done has made it a lot easier to bring people in. Um, And when you make it easier for people and less hurdles to jump through, I think that makes it easier for you to exploit migrants. Um, And we're a year into the system, so I think we're now seeing the downstream of that, of people arriving and being ripped off. um, But aspects of it have always been there. I mean, you know, the, the aspect of premiums where you pay for a visa... That's kind of always been there. It's just hitting quite a high level now. I mean, the, the going rate seems to be about $30,000 to buy a visa offshore. Um, but, yeah, it's as bad as I've seen it. It's the overarching cause and the reason why this is so bad because these are people often with very few support networks in New Zealand society. They have little power influence. They don't have a lot of money because they've paid all that money for a visa. Does that just make them easier to exploit and to do stuff like make them hole up in a house with 39 other men? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the, I've probably spoken to hundreds of migrants over the last few years and um, almost all of them arrive with very little understanding of our legal system um, and the rights that are open to them, um, which actually aren't that good. Um, and some of them are coming from legal systems that, that are have an element of corruption in any way, so they don't have a lot of faith that anything will be done. So none of them really know what they can do unless they happen to chance upon one of the migrant um, rights groups or upon a, a, an advocate. Um, and that was my initial way into finding these stories. I've worked quite hard over the last few years to try and get links into migrant communities because, um, yeah, they're not, they're not the average reader. They're not going to ring you up and tell you about, about it. You've got to go and find them. Is there a little bit of a media criticism in that? That uh, Can you imagine these stories getting so bad? You know, Nick Truebridge this week, 40 men in a house in Papakura with no food. You know, if that was well-to-do Pākehā like you or I in these sort of circumstances. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've got a working theory that our, our, our newsrooms sort of 10, 15 years ago particularly were very white, very middle class, and what what we wrote about really reflected what was going on in Greylin or, or North Coast Point. Um, I think we've moved on a bit from that. We've diversified our newsrooms, and that's a great thing because we've diversified the stories that we find because people write about what they know and what's around them. Um, so I think we're getting better at that, but I think 10 years ago, we, we, collectively the media, we're not good at it at all. And that's what I mean about fishing in a pond that no one's fishing in. I realised at the time that nobody was telling these stories. And I think one element of it is that, that, that it was hidden, right? We, we have a society that sort of functions on low-wage migrants running our petrol stations and our liquor stores. And we don't really look at um, the circumstances in which they're there working for us. And I think um, there's an element of collective blindness that we don't really want to know about it. 
because it would expose their living conditions and that we're almost complicit in. And that's right. So maybe there's an element of convenience and not actually digging too deep into the circumstances of these people. Do you think it is, again, that old problem as well? What you say that the newsrooms of our country maybe consciously or unconsciously envisage their audience to be probably relatively well off, probably Pākehā, maybe a homeowner, and they don't necessarily uh, speak to the concerns of people that are in these precarious situations, like exploited migrants. I mean, why do we have big real estate sections in every newspaper in the country, you know? Um, It's probably not wrong as as an assumption, but, um, you know, it's our job to um, speak to everybody in New Zealand, you know? Um, And... You know, that, that sort of talks to how you tell the stories as well. I spent a lot of years writing about um, poker machine frauds and I learned very quickly that the word poker machine is a massive turn-off to the audience. So how do you feed them the broccoli and still give them the cheese sauce, right? So you find a different way of telling the story. Um, and there's an element of that with the migrant exploitation stuff, you know. I've spoken to people who go, oh, I didn't read your story because I, I, I couldn't follow the names. It was, you know, too many too many people singing the story and da-da-da. And... Um, You've got to work with those um, sort of inbuilt prejudices and tell a story in a human way that, that, you know, everybody in the country can relate to. Because ultimately, um, when I have done that well, I get a lot of emails from people saying, as a New Zealander, this disgusts me, this is not what I believe in. Can I help these guys? Um, And genuine offers of help um, for people I've written about. So, yeah, how do you give them the broccoli but cover it with the cheese? And is that partly... appealing to that New Zealand sense of fairness and justice, right? Because that's sort of what you did with Balguel recently, and he's got a job now, I guess, because of your reporting. Was that what you did there? Just like, this is unjust, we can do better. That is 100% what I tried to do, yeah. yeah. Over time, I've realised that, that, you know, the issues are important, but you, 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 um, you have to present a human face of the issues. You have to engage the audience, say, here is a person just like you, here is their backstory, here is how they've come to be here. Um, generally, through no, no fault of their own, the situation they're in, if you were them, you would have made the same decisions, look at them now, this this isn't fair. And then you can get into the system issues of why it's not fair. And in, in, in his case, absolutely. I mean, the, the morning that story ran, um, I dropped my kids at school and... I'd had five phone calls, ten emails already, like people genuinely saying, can we give him a job, can we help? And then Aaron Davidson, who ran a company in Papakura making doors, followed through and gave him a job, and uh, Balguao's now gone on to a, a job that matches his skills. He was a carpenter. Um, and that's a good outcome for him, but there's been plenty of others I've written about who've had terrible outcomes. Does the commercial media model that most of our organisations operate under make this difficult in a way. You mentioned that we all have real estate sections that fund our papers and that's probably appealing to a well-to-do audience and that's where the money is. And does that make it difficult to tell the stories of people that basically have no money and are in precarious situations? And Is there a difficulty there? Does that make it harder to give people the broccoli with the cheese sauce, as you say? Um it does, but to be fair to stuff, they've always allowed me to write about what I want to want to write about. Um, so, you know, I've probably written about quite unsexy issues on the surface over the years, you know, liquor and gambling and migrant exploitation and fraudsters. And um, 
you know, none of it's particularly cheerful stuff, but they've allowed me to chase around after it because it's what interests me. So, um, you got to make it clickable, though, right? Is that what the challenge is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything's got to be readable, right? We're not we're not writing um, academic essays for our master's degrees, right? Um, but if you're half decent as a journalist, then then it should be clickable and readable. And the aim is that people will read it to the end. And and um, my stuff seems to do pretty well, um, as does the other people writing in this area. I mean, Nick's had a lot of follow with that story this week, and, and good on him. Um, so yeah, the challenge is always to make it very very readable from the first sentence and that's by giving the reader a massive dose of emotion in the first three or four paragraphs how do you do that oh well in 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 i mean in in bow's case it was um the fact that he had so little money he was eating half a packet of instant noodles just those little vignettes right of humanity that people connect to instant noodles you know surviving on instant noodles or in nick's case you know surviving on water yeah yeah so my question to them is always how do you feel and you always get an interesting answer. They'll always tell you um, how they're feeling and what the reality of their life is. And your job is to is to translate that into a way that's immediately um, catches people's attention, I suppose. You mentioned that you were the only person fishing in this pond for a while. Has it been encouraging recently to see Nick Truebridge on the TV, Lucy Sia, uh, Lincoln Tan, obviously, for a long time, uh, these different people that are following this story and bringing it to more attention? Oh, I mean, on one hand, it's great. It's brilliant. It should be done. On the other hand, for me, selfishly, it makes it, makes it harder. I haven't got it to myself. Um, and like you say, Lincoln was doing it before I was doing it, so all props to him. And when I started off, I was doing it with Dilipa Fonseca, who's a great journalist as well. Um, so, yeah, it's made my job harder. Um, but that's a good thing, right? You know, we should be telling these stories, so it's great that everybody is, you know? You want to create that positive change, and I guess it's hard... Uh, well, it, I guess it's easier to have create that positive change uh, if there are more people on the case, but probably harder for your career prospects. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I've been doing this this particular issue for quite a long time and there's other stuff I can write about at the same time. Um, you know, it feeds into my other rounds, sort of, you know, employment law and gaming and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's all, it's, for me, the stories I want to write about is the, the, the little guy being... Um, treated badly by the big guy in whatever setting that is. And are you actually hopeful that there will be change now that Andrew Little has commissioned this urgent review into the accredited employer work visa scheme this week? Um, yes and no. Um, what, what writing about this round has taught me is that the, um, the people who run these exploitation schemes are, are pretty shrewd and clever operators. Um, it's a bit like the drugs trade, right? You, you disrupt one way of doing it and they'll find another. Um, I think this particular set of visa regulations we've got at the minute do need urgently looking at and tidying up. Um, that may disrupt the flow for a while, but they'll they'll eventually find another way around it, is, is my sort of cynical and pessimistic view on it. Yeah, so you'll be covering this for some time yet. I expect so. Thank you very much for joining me, Steve. No worries, thanks. That was Steve Kilgallen, a senior correspondent at Stuff, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about how he and other journalists have lifted the lid on the plight of migrant workers, lured here with the promise of jobs, which end up being either short-term or non-existent. And on Thursday, as we heard earlier, Immigration Minister Andrew Little ordered an urgent independent review of how the scheme is being operated after serious concerns that checks of potential accredited employers were not being carried out.